Well, hello again. This is Ray Morales with The Blind Spot. And today my guest is Joe Bogart. Bogart. My bad. I'm sorry. But anyway, here we go. So, Joe, how are you doing today? I am really good. Thanks for having me on, Ray. Yeah. And um, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Oh, uh, let's see. What about myself could be interesting to people? Well, I, I'm a retired major from the United States Army. I served for 28 years in both the National Guard and active duty. Started out as a, as a private, retired uh, as a major after I commissioned. Then I served as the executive director for the Blinded Veterans Association for a couple of years. And now I live in Idaho and I am completely retired, just enjoying life and trying to stay fit and happy. Good. Can you, uh, uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that um, process of going from enlisted to officer? Oh, sure. Well, I started out, uh, I was still in high school when I joined the Army National Guard, did a few years there, and then I decided that I wanted to do more. So I raised my right hand again, went active duty, served for about 10 years or so active duty as a, as a enlisted and then, then as a non-commissioned officer up to the rank of staff sergeant, uh, finished, got my college degree, applied for, got accepted into officer candidate school. Off I went, became commissioned as a uh, second lieutenant in the United States Army, where I continued to serve until I retired at the rank of major. Cool. So I bet you've had a lot of interesting things happen to you along the way. I have. I've had a lot of a lot of interesting things. Met a lot of great people along the way. And the great thing about the military service is you find it's a great sampling of the entire population of the United States, and there's amazing people throughout that whole thing. Right. And uh, so where were you stationed? I did most of my career at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, but I also had uh, a three-year hitch in Germany. Um, I had, when I was in the National Guard, I had a quick little jaunt for a couple of weeks down in Panama. While I was in Germany, we had a, uh, about a six-month hitch to go down to Kosovo and serve down there, help down there with some stuff. And then while I was stationed at Fort Leonard Wood, I got to go to Iraq a couple times. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, uh, <clears throat> when I went to Iraq, I was already a second lieutenant. I went over there as a platoon leader the first time. And the first time I was there, I, I was uh, we were on our last mission. Our missions were route clearance. So basically, we went up and down the roads really slow looking for IEDs roadside bombs, improvised explosive devices, things that go boom. Right. And on our last mission, I found one the hard way, which means it went off um, within a few meters of my vehicle and it severely wounded me. Um, uh -huh. So shrapnel got through my vehicle. It uh, got behind my eye protection and lacerated and basically destroyed my right eye. The force of the blast threw me into some equipment in my vehicle, which caused uh, facial fractures and blunt trauma to my left eye. Um, my guys were quick on the draw. They were able to get uh, medevac on the ground, get me loaded up and safely out of there quickly. Um, they had to do a lot of emergency surgery on me. 
and in the process discovered that uh, my right eye was destroyed. It was going to have to be removed. And my left eye, they didn't know at the time yet. They, the army then had to uh, evac me onto Longstuhl, Germany, then on into Walter Reed Army Medical Center. At that time, it was still in Washington, D.C., still is. But it, And there, um, my wife finally got a chance to see me after almost a week of this process. And that's when they did determine uh, they were going to remove my eye there. And that's when they were looking at my left eye. After some surgeries, they were able to discover that my left eye had, uh, no, they had to remove the lens, no lens on the eye. My iris had been folded over. It took them a while to fix that. But I had um, a lot of damage in there and they weren't sure if I was going to be able to see again. I had a cortical rupture. Um, I eventually developed traumatic induced glaucoma. Uh, in my eye, I had and and there was some going to be some scarring from what all they had to do. Wow! So, uh, how long were you in uh, the hospital then? I was uh, an inpatient at Walter Reed for probably about two and a half, three weeks before I became an outpatient. But I was still a patient at Walter Reed for almost a year from wow. the date of my. I was actually three hundred and sixty-four days. I was from when I was wounded until I was discharged to go back to Missouri. In that process, there had a lot of, a few more surgeries to do, fixing my nose, a lot of titanium in my face. But during that, at about uh, three months after I was wounded, um, one of the doctors finally did a visual field on me. And they were successful in getting some, some eyesight back, which with really thick glasses, with a huge curve, even though I'm still a fake, no lens, they were able to get me to about 20, 60 uh with just under that that 20 degree field with a lot of blind spots going on and, and other things going on but uh i'm very thankful to get back to that i went from about 20 25 vision and just a blink of an eye to total darkness back to blurry eyesight that's not the best death perception right so you were a second lieutenant when this happened yes correct? i was yes i was and you retired a major so how did that happen well, um, after that time at Walter Reed, then I get back home to my unit at Fort Leonard Wood. While I was there, uh, I was going through what's called the Med Board, uh, Medical Evaluation Board and Physical Evaluation Board, MEB and PEB. During that process, they're evaluating me medically, evaluating my physical abilities and whether I'd be able to stay in or not. And <clears throat> excuse me. During that time, they just they determined that because of Army regulations and and the medical standards, I was not fit to continue on active duty. I was not fit to continue service. Uh -huh. I, I disagreed. I felt I had a lot I could still um, do. I had a lot of support from everything from my company commander, battalion, brigade commanders, which, you know, captains, lieutenant colonel, colonel, all the way up to the post commanding general of Fort Leonard Wood at that time, Major General um, Greg F. Martin. And so I went out in person to see the physical evaluation board and, and, and try to appeal it. They, um, they said, no, unfortunately by regulations, you do not meet standards. However, you can do what's called a co-ed, which is a continuation on active duty. It takes department of the army approval. So I applied for that. And in June of 2008, I got approval from 
the Department of the Army to stay on active duty. My unit had just deployed again to Iraq. I was on rear detachment, which meant I was helping, you know, all the things that have to go on back home while the unit is in, in, a, in a combat zone or deployed. My rear detachment commander, she saw those orders. She grabbed the phone. She called the, um, the installation headquarters and they cut my orders to go back to Iraq. But Great. to get that approved was not easy. Well, I bet. I bet that took an act of Congress. Not quite an act of Congress. Um, so in the process of, of me fighting to stay on active duty, um, and, and I had told my battalion commander then that I wanted to deploy again. If they deployed and I got approved, I wanted to deploy. And he, he first thing he asked me was, how much has, does Joe Bogart still have to sacrifice for his country? You know, what does your wife say about it? And I said, well, my wife knows that uh, I need to finish it the right way. We are very well aware, even more so of the risks, and I need to go back. Then he then and said, as far as for what I can sacrifice, you know, as a soldier, if I'm too valuable to be to sacrifice for my country, for my fellow brothers and sisters, then I'm, I'm no longer an asset. I'm a liability. And and he just kind of looked at me very, very thoughtfully. And he said, OK, um, if you can if you can do P, if you can do the pass the PT test, if you can do the physical standards that are needed to do this and you can qualify with a weapon thinking in that last comment that yeah, there's no way the blind guy can qualify with a weapon. <laughs> um, little did he know that before I had left Walter Reed, they had a firearm simulator system out there that they were using to help the, the wounded men and women um, who wanted to stay in to, to learn how to, to shoot uh, the, the weapons of, of, of the military, the, the M16, M4, M9 right. pistol. And whether they're an amputee or if they've, you know, had to, you know, maybe lost a finger or two, how to, how to do things differently and still be successful. And I had gone in there and learned how to, I'm normally right-handed was right. eye dominant. I lost my right eye. I learned how to shoot with my left eye and without being able to see very good, but still be able to see the target and how to successfully engage and hit the target. When I came off of the range, with my qualification and I went right into his office and he had, he, he said, okay. Then that point then it's like, if you can get your co-ed to stay in, you can go. So then when I came back with that co-ed and walked into my rear D commander's office, she immediately got on the phone and, and I was, I was on my way back to Iraq. And, um, by August 1st of 2009, uh, I was, excuse me, 2008, I was boots on the ground back in Iraq. The first, and as far as we know, the only blind service member to go back into ground combat since the Civil War. Wow. So score one for Team Bogart. Yep. Thanks. So uh, when you got back to Iraq, how was it? Hot, dusty. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I went over there and my biggest thing was the, the whole thing of me staying in the military was I'm going to do the jobs that, that free, that, that, that basically the, the desk jobs that other servicemen and women would rather not do because they'd rather be where more of the action is. Yeah. In the fight where the action is. Yeah. And so when I got over there, I was the headquarters company executive officer. 
um, keep a track of all that. Did that for about six months before they put me on battalion staff. And I was, I was the targeting officers. And then as a staff member, I was doing all the planning and coordination needed that I used to need as a, as a second Lieutenant platoon leader. So I was providing all that support to, um, the current platoon leaders and companies out, out on the fight looking for IEDs. Cool. So, um, how long did that last? Um, when did you come home? That was about a year long deployment. And, uh-huh. and I came home in June of 2000. It was, it was actually 15 month deployment for the battalion, but it was just under a year for me. I came home right at the tail end of June, 2009. And, it was, that was my closure. When I came home wounded, I was, I was on a stretcher. I was, I was on a cot. I was on, on I was not, I was, I was on a, on a morphine drip. It just, it was horrible. I mean, right. you, you come home and you've got no chance to adjust. It's just, you go right from the heat of things into now you're strapped to bed and you can't do anything. And right. you know, it's, it's incredible. You didn't leave on your terms. No, I didn't. But this time when I came back and I'm on the bus and we're coming, coming down, you know, interstate 44 coming into, to Fort Leonard Wood. And there's, there's signs out there. There's, there's the billboards have been welcome home. And, and as we're coming down into the gate and there's the whole Patriot guard and they're riding the motorcycles coming in, you know, escorting us and just that rumble of all those big bikes the bus parks and we get off, we form up and we start marching in and there they are, are lining the, the pathway with, with their flags. And we walk into the field house and there's all our family and friends and loved ones. And the place explodes. It just erupts with cheers and screams and applause. And, and I, my blurry vision got a lot more blurry for some reason. <laughs> and I thankfully nobody asked me to talk because I could barely breathe. There was, there was some sort of a lump in my throat and yeah, I get choked up just hearing the story. I, I get choked up telling it every time. Um, and there was my wife and my son and my guide dog that I had left at home for uh-huh. me to deploy. So I bet uh, your guide dog was happy to see you. She went absolutely bonkers. You know, she had the whole body wag going on when she <laughs> saw me and she just, my wife couldn't even hold her anymore. She just let go and here she come running over and she darn, she tried to tackle me and she oh, could yeah. not stop looking in my face. And, and it was, it was amazing. Oh, that's a great reunion. I'm sure. Yes, it was. And I'm sure your wife had the same reaction. Just about. Yeah. She couldn't stop licking your face. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, she couldn't stop laughing at my dog. So, um, let's see. Did you, um, I know most guys don't like to admit this, but did you uh, receive any other uh, accommodations or medals besides the Purple Heart? Um for for that tour I actually hadn't been over there very long. Um, I was kind of late coming to the party f- to them. And caught up to a month that already deployed the first one. The second one, um, uh, yeah, we did. So I, I've over my career, I've I've received a bronze star, a, a couple of meritorious service medals, accommodation medals, um, achievement medals, and a bunch of the other standard ones that come out. Um, my first two, I received a combat action badge. So 
You're a bona fide hero. Just a guy that was doing his job. Yeah, I know. You're very humble. So, okay, now let's tell us some more about you, but not um, not your uh, military career, but uh, let's talk about your personal life. You are married. Yep. And uh, any children? I do have one son, yes. And any grandchildren yet? Nope. Well, you're still young. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am. It'll come, believe me. Um, so um, uh, as far as schooling goes, what uh, what level of schooling did you have? Well, uh, going into all of this, I, um, I had a bachelor's degree. I had finished it. I had associates and bachelor's both. And then after, after my, my second tour of Iraq, um, and, and the head injuries I'd received during my first tour and stuff, I was, I was concerned about how much I would be able to do as a, um, academically again, because I knew there were some things that were different. You know, my brain Mm -hmm. didn't work quite as well. Right. I was successful to, um, after that second tour to graduate, uh, with really high marks with, uh, captain's career engineer, captain's career course, which prepared you for purges for both company command and as a, as a staff officer. Then, um, after, after a, a successful company command and everything. And then I was, I was the next step is to prepare for, um, higher staff positions and, and that includes command and general staff college, which is graduate level in the army. Uh-huh. So, so when I was doing that, I was realizing that I was able to, again, uh, academically, uh, do very well in Excel, which I had done beforehand. So then as I came back to Fort Leonard Wood, uh, where I was assigned after that, after that schooling that, um, I was going to go ahead and go after my master's degree, uh, which I was able to successfully achieve. Uh, a master's degree in management leadership from Webster University uh-huh. out of St. Louis, out of St. Louis, Missouri. Right. And which I've been able to put to good use. And how did you do that? When I retired from the army, uh, as I was preparing, cause I had to medically retire, which was a different, slightly different version of retirement than standard because I had to go through, a, you know, a lot more, uh, a little more medical review process. Because again, I was still, even though I had served for another, you know, um, 12 years after, after being blinded, uh, I still had to, uh, medically retire. And so during that process, uh, an opening came about with the blinded veterans association for the position of executive director. And a few folks said, Hey, what Joe, why don't you apply for it? You should have all of the credentials you need and all the, you know, the resume to, to do, to do it and the skills to do it successfully. So I applied while I was finally doing blind rehabilitation training, um, at, with the VA, cause I had learned enough to make myself dangerous as a blind person. I had been kind Learned of in denial. Habits, for, I'm sure. Yeah. A lot, a lot of bad habits, a lot of bad habits that, uh, that came about from 12 years of, of living as a blind person and faking that I could see more than I could. And also, um, but still it, it came out good. I mean, it came out good. I, I, so I was at, uh, at Heinz VA facility in Chicago, Illinois, getting my blind right. rehab. Um, I applied for the job and I got hired. 
So as soon as I re was officially retired and on retirement leave from the army, I walked in the door of Blind and Veterans Association out in the Washington DC area and took the job. Cool. And what did that job consist of? Everything. Uh, <laughs> as an executive <laughs> director of a, of a nonprofit, of a national nonprofit, especially a veteran service organization, there is all the standard nonprofit things you got to do with the, you know, you got to oversee the fundraising side of things. You got to oversee uh, what mission you're doing. You got to work with the board of directors. You have to, uh, I mean, to be all part of this organization, uh, leading that position, you also have to be a member. So I knew all that. Um, but the same token, you have to make sure as part of that mission, you're serving those, those members and, and those who deserve it by making sure that your the national staff are squared away and doing a great job of what they need, what needs to happen to serve those, those members. And you have to make sure the service department is helping people get what they need, uh, as part of their benefits that they so rightly deserve from their, their time in service. Then you're also working with. Uh, VA at the national level. You're working with the top folks, the secretary of the VA and his staff, the different components within the VA, um, the Veterans Health Administration is part of the VA, the uh, Veteran Benefits Administra Administration. And I'm probably screwing those acronyms up um, <laughs> because I always did. I always just called them VHA, VBA, all that. And then, um, so you're working with all the top leaders. Then you're also working with the Chief of Blind Rehab Services who oversees 13 different blind rehab facilities and nine visor outpatient clinics um, across the United States. And so you're working with them and you're working at the international level. You're working with our brothers and sisters over in, in, in the United Kingdom and, and, and with the blind of veterans UK on things. You're maybe working with parts of the world blind union. You might be working with other national organizations, uh, the American council for the blind, American Federation for the blind, um, uh, Vision Serve Alliance, you're working with all those different national level organizations to help serve veterans and, and building those relationships. So it was a very daunting task. There was a lot going on. Um, we're talking, you know, 70, 80 hour work weeks plus 50, 60 hours work weeks while on vacation. And that can take a toll. Plus, you're brand new to this blind thing, and here you got thrown into the deep end. Well, I, I wasn't necessarily new to being blind. I was new to accepting that I was blind, uh, but I was new to working at the higher levels with with the blind organizations, with the blind community. Right. Um, now, did you, during your stint there, did you implement any new programs? Um, oh, I'm thinking about that one. Um. Because I know in the last few years that uh, people have told me that uh, that the organization has really come a long way in just the last ten years. There, what we had to start doing, um, and this was over five years ago when I was on board, there was a lot of antiquated systems mm -hmm. uh, that needed to be modernized. Um, there was a lot of methods that had been done the same way they had been done almost since the organization had been founded in 1945 after World War II. Right. So it was a matter of 
beginning to update how things were done, um, getting more engaged on social media, bringing somebody in who can help with that, who has more knowledge of that. Um, starting to update how we do things with convention, bringing in um, as, as our, our director of government relations had retired. Uh, Melanie Brunson was who that was at the time uh, doing the search to replace her. And that search led me to Donald Overton Jr., uh, another blinded veteran from the Desert Storm era who came in um, and we hit it off. He hit the ground running um, and he started, you know, modernizing more of, of how things were done on Capitol Hill with our legislative team. He started working through um, seeing where we can make improvements with veteran services. And as I got to know him, I realized he's number one on my succession plan. You know, this is the guy that when I finally am, am ready to step down, um, that needs to step, that needs to take over the, the baton and, and take us to the next level. Right. And so there's a lot of, when I was there, there was a lot of foundation building. We had upgraded, updated our accounting from having a, uh, a heavy in-house accounting team to outsourcing it, uh, saving, um, over a hundred thousand dollars a year in our budget for that by outsourcing. There was a lot of cost savings that were going into place. There was a lot of foundation building, preparing things, um, to, to, to start turning the, turning the ship, start rebuilding the airplane in flight, so to speak. Right. And, and as part of that, part of that was, was finding and identifying the right people that can take the organization to the next level. I see. So, um, how did um, how did your um, relationship with Don um, continue to grow? Um, it continued to grow because even at, though he came on in October of 2019, I'd been there about a year and a half. Um, he could see um, there were some some hints that I was starting to burn out. Um, my wife could see I was starting to burn out and some of the board members that I'd known for years, um, some of whom, since I had been a patient at Walter Reed had said, Hey, that, you know, you need to dial it back, Joe, this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. And I'm like, yeah, but there's so much that has to be done. There's some sprinting mm -hmm. that has to happen. And finally when, and then COVID hit uh -huh. and when COVID hit, you know, the path forward was no longer the same path. The path that we were starting to go, that we had been going down was blocked. And in my exhaustion, exhausted state, I, I couldn't see where to, where to go next. Um, so I knew it was time. It was time to resign and hand off the reins. Um, the board agreed and uh, Don was there and him and I had been, uh, working together for a long time of here's where things go. Here's kind of the plan. Here's the, st st the strategic plan, the, the, the updated mission statement, vision statement that we had worked on the previous fall mm -hmm. and the board had put in place and everything was, was going good. Don then took over and started taking BVA to the next level. Um, and 
part of that was reining everything in because of COVID, because who knows how long that was going to last and how the fundraising was going to go. Right. So then by handing that off to Dawn and stepping back, catching my breath, um, and still being there as that, um, when Dawn was like, Hey, what was this about? How was that going on? What's the history of this program or this system that was in place? You know, he always had me to reach to and ask that question of, um, and we'd already become good friends and we're still good friends to this day. And, um, to the point where things like the convention, when we had our national convention, um, we would do an annual national convention. Members would come in, vote in new officers, vote on bylaw amendments, resolutions that we want raised for Congress that year and see the new things in the exhibit hall. Well, when COVID happened, the convention as we knew it went away and Don put in a, a, a virtual one. Well, then when it come time to restart it, um, Don had a lot of new people on board and um, cause a lot of people had, had left during COVID and uh-huh. in that process uh, he brought in a new person who had never done a convention for BBA. So Don had reached out to me, say, Hey, I want to bring you back on board, help us get through convention and transition another couple programs. And then, you know, let's see where things go. So uh, I hopped back on the, on the, on the wagon and, and helped them get through the 20, uh, 22 convention there in Washington, DC and worked hand in hand with Don hand in hand with Meredith. And we had a great, we had probably the best convention in BVA history um, with everything that went on. Then it was great. And then I was, but I was starting to feel that hint of burnout again. And I'm like, okay, I need to, maybe I don't need to go, go back on BVA's payroll. Maybe I just need to go ahead and relax and, embrace retirement for a while right well i'm looking forward to the convention this year this will be my first oh it's it's going to be a good time st louis not far from my own stopping grounds yeah a lot of good stuff going on it's it's going to be a good time so if anybody here is listening as a as a veteran come on out to the convention this year get registered if anybody listening here is someone who can be an exhibitor come on out there's a lot of things that you're going to get as an exhibitor you don't get at other conventions a lot a lot of chance to really um engage with the end user of products for veterans it's a and members and their spouses a lot of activities there's a lot of places to go eat nearby there's a you're right in downtown st louis there's a lot of activities to do uh, there's a dinner cruise there's uh botanical gardens uh, possibly a budweiser brewery tour um bowling st louis has got it all yeah. And you, and we're you walk a distance from the arch. I mean, it's, right. it's all right there. Walking distance to Bush stadium to go watch Maybe the Cardinals. Ball game. Yeah. Cardinals are going to be in town that week. Um, playing the A's and the Mets. I think both, I think it's what they've got. Um, so there's all that. Plus you'll get a chance to see some of the latest, um, products out there. A lot of the latest, um, prosthetic devices and stuff that are there for um, not just blinded veterans, but also blind people in general. I mean, everybody. So there's a lot of great new things that are out there. 
Right. So um, it sounds great that this is this is going to be very educational for people, um, and it's going to be a fun time for the veterans to, you know, we don't get much fun. <laughs> At least uh, blind veterans don't. They they seem to get overlooked a lot. Well, there's a lot of stuff out there for blind veterans. I mean, um, one, there's a lot of support through the VA. We are very fortunate by, uh, and a lot, a lot of the civilian blind organizations will flat out tell you, we can't provide the same support that the VA can provide to the blind and visually impaired. There's so much more that the VA can do because they've got the government funding behind it. So any veteran who's struggling, starting to lose eyesight, no matter their age, no matter their service connection, can get help. If someone who's listening knows of a loved one who had served in the military, maybe they're a, a Korean War vet or, or a Vietnam vet or a peacetime era vet, and, and they're starting to have trouble and they're starting to develop things like diabetic retinopathy, um, age-related macular degeneration, or anything, retinitis pigmentosa, or just go, go talk to the VA, go look into it, get a hold of a local VIST, um, talk to an, a VA optom, op, optometrist, ophthalmologist, and get things checked out and get things in the system. Um, because there's so much there, there's blind rehab facilities there, there's devices that can be issued. On top of that, uh, there could be some financial benefits that are there for, for them. And recreation. Just about every local VA facility has recreational therapy. Um, they've got someone there who's doing things. They're going out. And if you can get into the VA, you can get out and go do some hiking, some biking, some walking, some uh, less physically strenuous projects. Like um, I think mine's got wood carving. Uh, sometimes there's painting, pottery. Uh, there's volunteer opportunities. There's a ton of stuff going on out there. Not only that, but the Blind Veterans Association has a program uh, called Team BVA. Team BVA is there to help get our veterans, our men and women, out and active. And in a nutshell, they work with a lot of organizations to get folks up and moving. Uh, we had one of our members here from Idaho, uh, Randy Holloway, who went down and skied in Steamboat, Colorado this past winter. Um, he hadn't skied since he lost his eyesight and lost his arm. So it was great for him to get back up on skis. Um, we've had veterans kayak. We've had veterans fish, hunt, bike. Um, we've currently got two veterans who um, are climbing um, over one, one just summited Everest. So that's some pretty, pretty intensive stuff. Is that Lonnie Bedwell? That is Lonnie Bedwell. He just um, summited. Oh, that's he did, wonderful. Yeah, he did summit a couple days ago. Um, and, and then there's another young lady who I can't remember her name. Um, she's biked across the United States and she was uh, summiting. Uh, I'm going to mess up the name of the mountain. Lotz, Lotz, Lotzi or I don't know. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, but on top of that, you know, there's the connection connectivity that you get because, you know, as a, as a veteran, we've got a different viewpoint, different set of experiences than a lot of civilian people have now talking on the fact that you're blind, losing your eyesight, that adds a whole nother layer to it. 
So we are kind of unique in the veteran community. Some of us might have lost it from service connection, like me, from from combat wounds or John Turnbull combat wounds. Others from exposures to Agent Orange that have caused other health issues or chemical exposure. Some just got old and it happens. It happens. And there's, it's, it's all there. So there's a lot of resources out there. And if there's any veteran looking for resources, looking for help, anybody looking for help, contact the BVA. And you can do that a couple ways. You can go to the website, which is bva.org. That's B as in blinded, V as in veteran, A as in association.org. Um, and on that website, there's a phone number and it's 1-800-669-7079. That's 1-800-669-7079. Or you can email them at bva at bva.org. Pretty simple. Yeah, it's simple. Real simple. I, w- I wish my email was that simple. Yeah. But uh, again, if you, if you also need to contact me, uh, I will get get uh, your message to uh, to the BVA any way I can. So um, you can contact me here at uh, the blind spot two ninety eight at gmail dot com. The blind spot two ninety eight at gmail dot com. All right. Um, so let's keep talking about this. Um, what is the program called again? Uh, blinded, Vet- blinded Veterans Association. Or are no, you not talking that program? I'm talking about team, the one for yeah, team, team, team BVA. Okay. Yes. So um, is that? Um, I'm sure it's national, nationally um, recognized and, and um, available, but. Are there local chapters for the BVA? Um, yes. So the Blind Veterans Association has regional groups all across the United States. Um, and most all of them are in, have a presence somewhere in VA facilities. So like in Missouri, there's there's some folks that go into the Columbia, Columbia, Missouri VA. Some folks go into the Kansas City, Missouri VA. I think someone to St. Louis to help try to, not just capture, but reach out to new, you know, veterans who need support. Let them know what's out there. Um, and this is across the country. And, you know, in some of the big blind centers, there's the regional groups are right there. Like in Long Beach, California, they, they have, they're, they're there in, in that blind center. And Heinz, they're in that blind center. They're, they're there, right there to help. But, like here where I'm at uh, in Idaho, we're, we're kind of scattered. It's, it's kind of a big state. And so we're here in Boise. We're in Nampa. We're in Twin Falls. Uh, we reach out virtually. We have support groups. So there's a great chance um, to get in touch with other like members. And, you know, it's not hard to get on to a virtual support group. Uh, most of the younger veterans out there know how to use smartphones and it's easy to click on and get onto a support group with a smartphone. Um, but 
like our support, like several out there, it's not just for the veteran. It's also for the family members, for the caregivers. Right. Right. There's a lot of stuff out there for them too. And, and that's, we can't do what we do without our caregivers, without our family, without our friends. Right. So, um, speaking of which, um, what kind of support have you gotten from your family and friends? I've gotten a lot of support over the years. Um, when I was first blinded, uh, and my, I remember I, I was in the intensive care unit there in Walter Reed. My wife comes in, and within minutes of her coming in, I had a buddy that I'd served with in Germany years before who was in the D.C. area for schooling, and he was right, almost almost on our heels coming in the door, um, which was good because he'd had a had been a medic before and was able to help interpret what had gone on. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple other buddies were like the next day on a plane coming out to visit me and technically they were AWOL cause they didn't have the, the, the leave or the mileage pass to go that far from, from uh-huh. where they were stationed. Um, so, and through that, they've been with me. They helped me get out and do things. They helped me get, stay active and, and not lose my sense of self. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have them. I mean, cause they, they got me out back out hunting, fishing out in the woods, things that I grew up doing and love doing. Um, I started to run and, and one of those guys started, he, he ran with me, my wife runs with me, but getting to work was, was a challenge. Um, cause where I lived in a smaller town, um, th- you know, when I was staying in the army, I, there was no mass transit, you know, it was, it was, you know, this is, this was pre Uber pre Lyft. It was right. call a taxi or have family and friends. So I, there was a lot of family and friends that, that, that helped get me to and from work. Um, and this was at Fort Leonard Wood, you're talking about? This was about? at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. You yeah, know. it's out in the middle of nowhere. It is, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and they got me in, into work, which was amazing. It, it allowed me to continue serving. Um, and it, then when I got to D.C., it was a lot easier. I was able to catch mass transit and such. But even then, there was still, everything I did was, that I did, I had the help of family and friends from my lovely wife, her mother-in-law, even my son, when he started driving um, to be able to do things and be independent as much as I could, or put the systems in place. So I could be independent. Right. Um, Now my wife and I stay active together. She's my guide runner. We run together. Um, We ski together. She's my primary guide. When we ski, Uh, we even bicycle together on separate bikes, not tandem. Uh And again, she's guiding. So, um, it's, it's all out there. And, and when I go hunting, I've got a buddy of mine who was wounded about a month before I was, um, I'll go back to Missouri and I'll hunt with him. And even though he's in a track chair, when we go out into the woods and isn't able to necessarily, it's a lot more of a challenge for him to like set up a ground blind. I'll do all the legwork, uh, no pun intended (laughs) to, uh, to get things set up. And he's got the eyes so he can see if a deer's coming in or if there's a turkey coming in or, you know, if we're fishing together, help me, help me tie on a fish hook and bait my hook so I can right, fish. Right. Um, not that I'm scared to bait my hook. It's just, it's hard to see to make sure I, I, I don't stab my finger when I'm trying to stab the worm. Right. <laughs> and plus tying that knot on that little monofilament is just uh, almost impossible unless you. Oh yeah. I can't even. Yeah, it, it can't even see it. It's invisible to me. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, because uh, many people don't know this, but uh, when you're 
visually impaired, you also need um, a different type of contrast in order to see things, especially monofilament, because it is almost invisible anyway, even to a sighted person. That's correct. That's correct. And so, yeah, so even though I'd had, you know, near perfect vision when I was when I was sighted and zero problems with uh, color blindness now. I have some issues with a little bit of color blindness issues. Um, For sure. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it can be a challenge. You know, color, I don't see the differences in the colors as much as I used to. Yeah, same here. Um, it's, it's been tough. Um, and my, my listeners understand what I've gone through, as I've said it many times. But uh, it's, it's, um, it never gets better. It just gets worse as you get older. So I'm, I'm trying to prepare not for the, uh, not for it to get any worse. So yeah. I try to try to keep it in check as much as possible and yep. uh, do the things I can to keep it from getting any worse. So good. Uh, tell me more about um, what the future looks like for you. Um, well, right now the future for me is, try to stay healthy, stay fit, relax, mm -hmm. retire. Uh, I actually signed up to do my first triathlon uh, next month. Well, that's not June. relaxing. <laughs> actually, it is. Um, I discovered I always hated running. When I was when I was in the Army, I always hated running. Um, it was something I had to do. Well, something I noticed while I was in the process of going back to Iraq, that second tour, uh, when I was in Kuwait – a friend of mine, she's like, Hey Joe, there's a, there's a 5k run, you know, I'll guide you if you want to run it with me. So here I am jet lagged, not used to the time zone change. It'd only been like two days. It was already at 5am. It was already a hundred degrees. Okay. I'll run it. But then I, then I completed it. I'm like, well, this wasn't too bad. And it was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that I was able to replace, I used to ride a motorcycle. I was able to replace the motorcycle with running. So when I needed to get out and think, I was able to run and relax. And I kind of did that. And for the longest time, I would do the Army 10 miler every year. My, I would train up for it. And as, as time went on, then that's when my wife began to be my guide. And then I you know, did a couple marathons those really suck. That's a long distance to just do nothing but run. Right. Um, but then I've always wanted to try a triathlon because it mixes it up. You do one activity, then you do another activity, then you do another activity, and then you've burned a lot of calories. You can go have a steak dinner. And tell my listeners, in case they're not familiar with the triathlon, what's included in that? So a triathlon, they have several different lengths of it, uh, but they all start out with a swim then a bike ride, and then a run. Uh, the shortest distance is usually a super sprint, which is about a 400-meter swim, about a 10K bike ride, and about a mile-and-a-half run. Um, so all, all at once. Yeah, you, you, you swim, then you get out of the water, climb on a bicycle, ride, and then you get off the bicycle, and then you run. Um, and it's... It can be pretty competitive. Um, Sounds looking, grueling. It can be. I mean, the short distance isn't too bad. Um, the longer distances, the sprint where everything doubles. 
and then you start going up from there. Um, this is the first time I've ever done a, a, a true triathlon, so I'm starting with a super sprint. Uh-huh. Wow. So what else you plan on doing? Um, I'm still active. I, I'm, I'm still active hunting and fishing whenever I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to time it where I can go out and do something with Project Healing Waters. There's a chapter here in, in, in Idaho. I do adaptive sports when I can. I'm, I'm with my local VA rec therapist and uh, do stuff when I can with, with them. I, I'm the primary cook in my house, so I enjoy cooking, cleaning. I'm not cleaning so much, but I enjoy the cooking part. <laughs> right. Um, my wife and I have div- discovered the joys of minor league hockey out here. We've got a really good minor league team that's in the playoffs, so we go to a lot of, a lot of games. And just enjoying life, you know, being able to travel a little bit. And while I can still see a little bit, see more of the country while I can. Um, right. I also, when I can go back to Missouri to visit family and I help my dad work on old antique tractors. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, well, if you're ever in the St. Louis area, give me a call and uh, maybe we can hook up and do something together. Sounds good. I plan to All be right. there in August. Well, we're going to end this thing now. It's been a great time talking to you and learning more about you and your life. Um, So if you have anything else you'd like to mention to the veterans out there, go ahead. Well, guys and gals, um, you're not alone. Everybody's going through or has gone through what you've gone through. What is personal is universal. Reach out to someone else in the BVA. Go to some support groups if you need to get to know other folks. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of folks that want to do things and stay active. And if you're younger and want to be active and go-getter, there's opportunities. If you're older, just want to be able to sit around, tell stories, maybe play some bingo or some cards, that's there too. Um, Let's go have fun. We serve together. Let's continue to heal together. Amen. That's a great message. All right. Well, folks, this has been another episode of The Blind Spot by Ray Morales. Uh, You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your major um, podcasts from, you'll find us there. So if you want to email us, the email address again is theblindspot298 at gmail.com. That's theblindspot298 at gmail.com. You can call me anytime. My number is... 270-339-6448. Again, this is Ray Morales with The Blind Spot. Thank you for tuning in, and we will talk to you again soon.